Our title track is up next. This one is Backstreet Symphony. I have a lot of notes on this song. <laughs> so I'm going to guess none of them good. Oh, no. No, I think it's a pretty good song. Um, it's, uh, it's a little simple for me, a little repetitive. But the opening, I don't know if you're familiar with the song from Stay Hungry by Twisted Sister called You Can't Stop Rock and Roll. Um, but yep. this, the opening is very similar to that. It's got those like little mini drum fills, uh, you know, through each bar, uh, which, which works, you know, for the song. Uh, that came out in 84. Interestingly, the main riff of this reminds me of Joe Satriani's song, War. It's almost exactly the same as, as the main line. But Joe Satriani's War did not come out until 1992. Mm. So I don't know if there wasn't a little, maybe uh, maybe Joe heard these guys and was like, all right, I'm going to do something with that. But it's, I mean, it's such a straightforward riff. It's It's very understandable that multiple people would have come up with it. Um, but oh, but yeah. I did find that very interesting. It's like a slowed down version because War is like a very aggressive song from Satrion. It's a great instrumental. Um, there are a lot of changes in the song, which I really like. Um, it really keeps it interesting and moving. And I think that's part of why I don't like this style of music as much, because um, it's it's generally repetitive. It's, you know, when we do the chorus, this is how the chorus is. When we do the verse, this is how the verse goes. And they don't add or take away things a lot. They don't, you know, make each one of them individual, um, which is the same issue I have with Aerosmith sometimes is that, okay, it's like copy paste, you know? Um, but, uh, but I, I didn't, I didn't like the solo. I thought the solo was just a little beyond, um, it, it was a little more into the shredding than I like. Um, but I, I, I like the idea of it. I think just the performance was a little, a little beyond me. Um, uh, but overall I thought it was a pretty good song. I really dig this song. Uh, lyrically, I love it because, uh, it, again, it's just going out with the boys, having some drinks, mm -hmm. and, and finding a girl with a guitar. And when she sings, you know, that beautiful Backstreet Symphony. And, and it's just, I love the straight. And you, you talked about, you, you see, to me, that repetitiveness is almost like a comfort zone, mm -hmm. uh, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's like I'm being swaddled in the goodness of rock and sure. roll. Sometimes when you get a big change, it throws me out of that. Mm. And that's the problem I'm having with some of early Genesis. So like, okay, I'm with this melody. I got it. There's a change here. That's cool. And then it'll just all just stop dead for no reason. And Tony Banks will play an 18 minute piano solo or something, which musically I could see why that's interesting, but in a, an experience of a song doesn't excite me. Right. 
Whereas, you know, you know, give me a, a cool bridge that, that kind of is different from the chorus that leads me into the next verse, mm-hmm. you know, make, make it all kind of fit coherently. Right. Uh, I'm very much a, 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 you know, tell me a story, uh, whether it's you know, on a screen or musically, tell me a story. If you're veering off uh, for me, I find it a little disconcerting uh, when it works, it works well. But a lot of times that, that doesn't necessarily work for me all the time. Whereas a song like this to me works for me 100% of the time. Um, the solo, I, I, I see your point. I, I, I don't mind it as much. It's probably one of my least favorite solos on the record. Mm-hmm. And Luke Morley is an amazing guitar player, but um, this is one when they break it out live, they have a couple of live albums out. Uh, sounds phenomenal live. And when I'm playing drums and I'm playing the thunder, this is one of my favorite songs to play. Cause mm-hmm. I just, I just love the, the, the tempo of it. Yeah. it. It's just a fun song to play. Well, and it's, and it's a great pocket song as a, as a drummer, if you can just latch on to that. You know, you can you can play it with a little bit of that swing feel. You don't have to be right on the two and the four, which I like. You know, you can kind of lay back on on the beat a little bit and play it almost more Ringo style, and and uh, really just you know have fun with it. I think I can I can explain the difference between our musical tastes. You like music that you can just sit back, have a beer, and just enjoy without having to really think about just put on something that's that that just makes my ears happy whereas Mm. i'm more like i want to be able to i like to sit forward make me go hmm what was that so whereas a song like this which is is more straightforward is comfort food for you for me uh in the court of the crimson king or tarkas by emerson lake and palmer like those are comfort food songs to me there you go. Well, that's a good way to describe it. Which is why I never even got into bands like Black Sabbath a whole lot, because Black Sabbath is a pretty straightforward band. Um, although yeah. I, I loved Mob Rules and I loved Born Again. Um, I've covered Born Again on the show. Thank you, by the way, for the news, Tony Iommi, that you're going to do the remaster now that you found the tapes. So excited about that. Uh, <laughs> but he did say wait. So uh, <laughs> well, he's doing all the albums in order. Okay. Yeah, but I was I was very happy to hear they found the master tapes. That was the big deal. Um, but right. uh, but yeah, but I never even got into them a whole lot because it was it was just almost too simple. So uh, that's I think where we differ. But I I do find a lot of good stuff in this music. If that if that's because they're if that like helps they're, at all. they're they're a very they're very good musicians. Uh, I, I feel I'm not really much of a musician, but um, I, they certainly get respect from their peers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for for the way they 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 play, and uh, to me, uh, this is a, a shining example, and in uh, their new stuff, even more so. Like uh, the majority of the band still together. I, I think four out of the five guys are all originals. Just the bass players kind of swung through uh, a few different times, but four of the five original members still out there touring the boards, as they say. Oh, nice uh, in the UK, yeah, and and still uh, killing it. Yeah. Uh, if you like this type of music, pick up all the right noises and dopamine. Two great records Excellent. came out in the last couple of years. I would I would say the the one thing for me that um, is almost just too simple are the drums. I, I don't think that there's a lot of really exciting fills that that could have helped with the transitions from you know maybe verse to chorus or into the bridges. Um, I would have liked to have heard a little more excitement in the drums for me, it, just like an overall statement for the album. He's a very straightforward drummer. And, and to me, I get excited by a good swinging uh, drum performance mm-hmm. as opposed to like a, you know, look what I can do. Right. Yeah. Like like there, there's that done right, which is probably Neil Peart mm-hmm. from Rush. Right. Yeah. And there's that done wrong, which is like Tommy Lee from Motley Crue. Right. Where it's just, oh, I can do all this shit and I can do it hanging upside down. Yeah. And none of it makes a, a lick of sense. Whereas I would rather listen to Phil Rudd. Or, or uh, the fellow from Thunder here, just any day of the week, just playing that good swing and drumbeat. Ringo Starr is another one. Yeah. Uh, you know, give me more of that. Mm. Uh, technically proficient, I can respect. 
I'd rather just a good swing and beat. One one drummer I really just have never been able to get into is Tommy Aldrich. I, I know he's very yeah. well loved by people. He did he did a really good job in White Snake, but he's he's a little he's he's a lot more like Tommy Lee. He's very over the top and um a lot just overkill on the double bass for me. Um yeah, I I I like Ringo. Um I really like like his um his swing feel if you listen to like i want to hold your hand is always the example i i use if people want to understand what a swing feel without a swing beat is that's a perfect one to listen to watch him play that watch you know the television performances of him playing that you will see it and then you'll feel it yeah yeah absolutely excellent stuff so we we can definitely agree on that uh, i was I, I had a point uh, about a drummer and it completely fell out of my head oh no so you'll have to cut that part okay <laughs> Uh, was it was it about Tommy Aldridge or uh, Tommy Lee? No, lost oh, it. There you go. <laughs> well, if it comes back, we'll we'll just pop it back in. Uh, okay. Our uh, our next song on the album um, is called "Love Walked In." say believe it or not i am not tired of the acoustic intros on this album i actually enjoy them i think they're very well performed um they're very well thought out and uh and and i'm not uh, i'm not hating that so what do you think of the transition from acoustic to the chorus which is a big bombastic uh, rock ballad type chorus you know it's it's funny um the first thing I was thinking when when this came on was this would actually have been a really good song on the firm's initial album, The Firm. Okay. Um, I, I just the way that it's played is is very uh, Jimmy Page. I, I could really see them doing that. Um, that album is weird because it has like a mellow overtone to it, as heavy as it gets in points. It's really bizarre production. But um, I thought the transition was surprising. I, I did not expect the way that they did it. I thought it was really good. Um, I'm going to play it here in a second, but I thought, you know, it's like a minute and 33 before it really kicks in. So it's a little bit long. Um, the song is six and a half minutes, which I thought it didn't really need to be six and a half minutes. It, it could have been cut down to four and a half or five. And I think I, I would have liked it better. Um, the chorus is nice, though. Um, there's there's some really decent soloing at the end, uh, which which uh, I thought was was really impressive, um, really encapsulated the feeling of the song, which is what I want in a guitar solo. Yes. Uh, to me, this is one of those uh, absolute great thunder songs. Uh, it was her last single uh, released off this record, but yeah, I, I think you can trim some, especially off the head here a little bit uh, mm -hmm. going into that transition. But yeah, I love that. It's and especially doing this live. I remember watching their live at Donington performance and, you know, it's just uh, Steve and Luke on the acoustic and then the whole band kicks in. 
uh, on uh, that's when love walked into my door and it's like oh that's you know great power great transition um it, it's very reminiscent uh, like you said with all the acoustic intros uh, on this record i'm actually kind of uh, encouraged to hear that you didn't get sick of them because there, there's a few uh, on this record that start off the same way yeah a surprising amount actually i i expected once i heard the first one i thought okay maybe there'll be three and I thought that would have been it, but there was a surprising amount, but no, they're, they're done so well. And, you know, I, um, when I hear somebody play acoustic guitar, well, it makes me sad that I cannot play guitar because it would be so nice to just grab the acoustic and play some beautiful melody like that. Something that it, cause it flows so well. And as, as drummers, I think we can appreciate that just the syncopation of it and, and, and just the, the melodic flow but uh, yeah, it makes me sad when I can't. I mean, I can't even pick up an acoustic guitar and strum chords very nicely. It sounds like, you know, something that just should not be baking in the kitchen. Oh, I'm the same way. I bought an acoustic guitar and I, I bought one of those chord buddies. I'm like, I'm going to teach myself how to play acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. And just like, there's no way I'm ever going to fucking get this and make it sound remotely competent. <laughs> so stole yeah, the guitar. I, I, I'm happy with bass. I, I love playing bass. It's a lot of fun for me. Um, but, and, and because I think it's a more percussive melodic than it is a melodic percussive instrument. Um, but yeah, uh, one string at a time. I'm, I'm happy. There you go. Yep. So let's check out where it kicks in. They really like doing that. Um, let's let's hold off for a, an eighth note and then come back in. Mm-hmm. I, I like that. Um, I think it's a great transition. I love that that wasn't a crazy drum fill. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was just sitting here saying I wanted more from the drummer. But in this case, I think that was absolutely perfect. It didn't need to be something grandiose, but it needed to be powerful. 100%. Couldn't agree more. Imagine what Tommy Lee would have done with that. Right. He would have been all over the fucking place and it just would have been yeah. a nightmare. You know, and and I've never been a fan of Motley Crue's music. They're just another band that, you know, never really, they're like, um, let's have some beer and talk about chicks. Yeah. And and that was really never my my wheelhouse for for anything. But I, I, I've always been mystified by the fascination of Tommy Lee, even before he started doing the, you know, upside down drumming and all of that. I just, I just never got it, you know. But I but I listened to drummers like Bill Bruford and, you know, uh, Ian Pace and, you know, Carl Palmer. So a, a straightforward rock drummer who's he's just too basic for my taste. But mm-hmm. but it makes me wonder what the fascination is. If he's not doing something that's interesting or spectacular, what are people seeing in there that I'm not? I think people that are interested in the drums or play the drums aren't that keen on Tommy Lee. But mm-hmm. uh, like just uh, straightforward rock fans you know, look at what he can do and say, that's really impressive. He plays really fast or the way he does those those roles is is impressive. But people who are kind of more in the know, uh, maybe know a little bit more about music like yourself and like Kevin Brown, look at a guy like Tommy Lee and go, well, that's just, he's just jerking off all over the place. None of this services the song. Right. And and on the opposite extreme side of that, you've got a guy like Terry Bazio, who was the drummer for Missing Persons, played with Frank Zappa, who is an incredibly talented guy. You know, he could give Neil Peart a run for his money. Mm-hmm. But when I listen to him play, especially his his solo videos and stuff that he's done, because I used to work in a music store and we played his videos a lot. 
And like, what is the musical relevance to this? I don't understand the value of what you're doing. Like, yes, you can play these crazy complex parts, but where does it fit in? You know, it certain things he did worked really well with Missing Persons. And if you just sit down and listen to what he's playing on like mental hopscotch, it's kind of nuts. No one else would have played that. And it works for that band. But it's just like eight part ostinatos and all these things that he can do. It's it's like it just yeah, that's cool. But other than a drum solo, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. Uh, to me, uh, a good example is Fairweather fans think Tommy Lee's a great drummer. Rock and roll kind of aficionados or fans or performers think Phil Phil Rudd's a great drummer because yeah. what he does is really, really hard to replicate. Like to, to get that that mm-hmm. swing. Like, yeah, he probably never touched a Tom in his life. But to, to, to get that swing, I remember uh, a story uh, I think I heard. It was like one of these big festivals and Tommy Lee was like ragging on Phil Rudd. They were on the bill too. Saying, ah, anybody can kind of play that. And they're like, you try and play 60 minutes of Let There Be Rock and, and keep that time. That's yeah. damn near impossible. <laughs> well, and that's that's the other thing, too. I've even heard, you know, drummers that are, are really well known and respected say, I can't play these two songs in the set list next to each other. Or we can't play this song because I'm going to be too worn out to do the next thing. Um, Cozy Powell. You know, we've we've talked about Cozy Powell in the Cinderella episode. Incredibly well respected and famous drummer. Uh, could not play a light in the black after they did Stargazer because it was just after Stargazer, that's a workout mm-hmm. for any drummer. I don't care how, you know, well-versed or seasoned you are. And then to do a light in the black, which is a, just like twice as fast and a, just as long of a epic song. That's a lot to ask out of somebody. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. You know, but uh, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And, and I think you're right in that comparison. I think you're the way that they see it. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, with with uh, Phil, he, God, that, that guy's just such an incredible talent. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's one drummer that will never see anybody like him again. No, and uh, when he left the band, and they brought in and it, uh, the names escaped me who they brought in, but he was kind of more of that that hair metal type drummer, and he got bored. Like I'm just playing, you know, the, the same backbeat all to these songs all the time. It's like, but you're not playing it like Phil Rudd played it, and and that's kind of the difference, right? So th- those songs were performed competently they weren't performed as well as they were with Phil Rudd. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, it, it's almost making that same compromise using Paul Rogers in a band like Queen, like, okay, well we can't do Bohemian Rhapsody, even though everybody's going to be expecting us to do it, but here's what we can do instead. Yeah. Well, and they did half of Bohemian Rhapsody. So uh, for the quieter beginning part, they just played Freddie singing mama just killed a man and all that. And then Paul Rogers came mm-hmm. in on the rock portion. So, so you think you can stone me and spit my eye. That was Paul Rogers. And then him and Freddie traded back on uh, on the final uh, refrain. Oh, that's interesting. I would have thought he would have sang the the earlier nope. part because that seems like that would have worked with his voice. Nope. The whole uh, operatic Mama Just Killed a Man, uh, when it was Paul Rogers in the group, uh, they just played Freddie uh, at a live setting doing that. Now with uh, Adam Lambert, he does the entire song. Yeah. Well, he's got that range yeah. and the power yeah, exactly. to do it. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Well, our next song uh, is a very interesting title. As I was looking at this, you know, thinking, because I, I do look at when, I, when I'm listening to an album for the first time and I get a sense of what that album's going to be. You know, you listen to two or three songs and you kind of understand what the shape of the album is. And, and you look at the title, you're like kind of trying to guess at what you're going to get. When I read the title of An Englishman on Holiday, I had no idea what the fuck was. <laughs> it's like, I don't know where this is going. Is this going to be like a pub song? Is this going to be, you know, like an Irish drinking song? What are we going to get here? But at the end of the day, here's what we got. 
So this was the song I had to listen to multiple times because I just kept checking out mentally. Like I was listening to it and then I would just start thinking of other things and forget I was even listening to a song. Um, this one I did not care for at all. Um, there's some really nice piano playing in it, which was kind of a surprise. I didn't expect that, but it's it's really just standard 12-bar blues stuff. You know, da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, very, very expected playing. There was nothing really exciting or, or unique about it. Um, there is some good good bass playing in here. I did I did like that. Um, I like that part of the riff where they they put a little bit of a change in it that was a little bit unexpected, just like one note they went to that I wouldn't have guessed that they would, um, being as straightforward as they are. So I thought that was pretty cool. But yeah, this song didn't do it for me. To me, this was the the part of the session where it's like we need like one more song to finish off the record. Like we have one more yeah. spot, so they 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 just kind of let's just play some twelve bar blues. We're gonna sing a little thing about getting rowdy and drunk at a bar and hitting a guy with a stool mm-hmm. and all that. Um, so uh, yeah, the, the, this is kind of the section of the album where you're getting those album tracks that, especially in the, kind of this slot here, uh, where it's like okay, we need one more record uh, to fill mm-hmm. outside B or one more uh, one more song. Uh, and, and they just kind of rushed out an Englishman on holiday. Uh, I still dig it because I like 12 bar blues and I like this band and the lyrics are funny. Like, a, you know, this guy's giving his girl the eye. So he hit him with a stool. You know, I, I, I grew up in a bar, so I, I totally get right. that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, mean, I, it, I, I see it's... where you're coming from totally. But um, as an album track, this one still kind of worked for me. Yeah, I, I don't feel like it's filler. You know, that's that's the weird thing is I, I don't like the song, but I don't feel like it's filler. I think it's a perfectly valid song for the album. I, and, and again, it goes back to uh, like, don't wait for me. I love that they're doing something different that that, again, it's not like all the same tempo and all the same type of music because it does have a different feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like the way that you identify with the the bar portion of that, because for me, it's like when I saw the movie Clerks, I worked at 7-Eleven. And I could identify with so many things in that movie, especially when people like would would come in and ask for a hubcap for a Pinto or <laughs> complain that they had to drink hot coffee when that's what most people come in for. <laughs> like just the, the ridiculous things that I dealt with when I worked in that store. Um, so I I, I I I think that's part of your perspective on that too, is that you could that it's very relatable to you. It might as well have been called a Canadian on holiday because you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, but but I mean it's 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 definitely got its merits for that style of music. I'm really not a blues guy. In in mm-hmm. fact, um, watching Adventures in Babysitting, the most annoying scene to me was when they're doing the the blues scene where Elizabeth Shue has to sing, otherwise they won't let her leave the stage. <laughs> uh, just just because I just like that that music is just the same thing over and over and over. Yeah. To me, I, I don't hear like there's nothing interesting about it to me. Um, but yeah, I, but but again, the performance on it is fantastic. You know, if you're if you're looking for a good 12 bar blues, I would highly recommend the song. And I tell you, and, and you know, the band said themselves, the entire session was like 60 percent laughing, 20 percent drinking, 20 percent work. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, and this right. is what they turned out. I think it's pretty good. Yeah, it, it definitely part of the drinking. It kind of reminds me like the the uh, we just covered on uh, Backtracks Aerosmith Revisited. We covered uh, the Rock and Pneumonia and the Boogie Woogie Blues. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me of that style of, of music. Maybe not, that's a little more extreme, but the kind of piano playing that you get in a song like that mm-hmm. is, uh, it reminds me of this very much. So in fact, I think Deep Purple's cover of that was more along that line. Okay, yep. Well, that's a very good yeah. comparison. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, they did a great job with it. Uh, holding very true to the style of music, I think they produced a great song. 
Yeah. And and like I said, I think it was just, uh, we need one more, boys. What do you got? All yeah. right. Well, th- just play a little blues riff. I'm just going to scat some lyrics to it. And then that's mm-hmm. what came out. Even the, oh, yeah, all right. The b- background vocals were really kind of uh, kind of nice. Uh, on, on the yeah, second I actually like there. that part. Yeah, yeah, I actually did like that part. And again, they're 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 mixed in there very very well. They're they're not uh, overbearing or anything. In fact, I forgot to mention what song was it? Was it um, was it until my dying day when I when we went back and what's the one that had the big um, the big lead in that, that we just went back and played? Was that Love uh, Walking? Love, Love Walking was the last song we listened to. Jesus yeah. Christ. That was like an hour ago, though, so it's okay. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it was yesterday, and um, but I I like the the backing vocals in that too in the chorus because it really set a different tone. It wasn't that typical third up. It had a whole different feeling to it than than anything we heard, and I thought that really worked. I like the backing vocals on this one too. I think that that you know that the feeling changes the song a little bit, and I did appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So our next song is called "Girls Going Out of Her Head." This is a good rocker. Yeah, probably the high, the fastest tempo, right, uh, on the album. Yeah. yeah. Oh, by far. Yeah. Um, this is definitely the most uh, dramatic and, and exciting song on the album, which is probably why I like it more. I uh, love that double bass intro. You know, I, I think double bass is something that really needs to be done to taste. You oh, know, yeah. it, it can be overkill very, very easily. Um, I like I like sometimes like with even with early Metallica where there was just like a straight double bass part to really uh, you know put the put that intensity in the song, um, but for the most part I like more like this where it's just used as little bits of filler and and, and that um, I like that there's a lot of changes in the guitar that the riff isn't exactly the same on every pass he's putting different inflections and stuff in it um, I thought the vocals were a little bit um, almost too on the mark. Like every every line kind of sounded the same, which which we do get a bit of on this album. Um, but yeah, this was a, a pretty decent song. I really dig this one too. And we're getting like into the dregs on side B, right? Like where, where you kind of put uh, where you, where you would put the filler uh, if it existed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, to me, yeah. The, uh, straight out rocker, like good rhythm to it. I could see maybe uh, Danny could have been a little more adventurous uh, on on the vocal performance. Uh, I, I, I totally get that, but this is still one. Uh, I'm not skipping this one. I'm not skipping any of the tracks, actually, uh, when I pop on yeah. Backstreet Symphony. I love every single one. But, um, you know, this is usually the spot. It's the second to last song on the album, uh, on the vinyl album, anyway. Uh, th- right. This is usually where you put the worst song on the record. But uh, I don't know if there is a worst. I, I couldn't even tell you what I think the worst song on this record is. I, I really dig <laughs> this one. Yeah, it's it's a good song. It's got great energy to it. And I think that's that's what I was disappointed in the vocals is that the the vocals are very consistent on just about every song. Um, he puts 
whether it's a ballad or, you know, a little bit up more up-tempo song, he seems to put like the same amount of energy into everything. And I think this is one where he could have kicked it up a notch and put a little more grit into it, a little more uh, power behind it, I think would have worked a little bit better. Yeah, no, I could see that. And I, I actually was thinking, what would I say is is my least favorite song on the album? I think it might be the one coming up next. Right. Okay. Which I like the original well, very much, but. The Spencer Davis group version? Yeah. Yeah, I grew up on that song. Um, that was a song that they used to play in Detroit. I can't remember what it was for, but there was like some festival or something where they played the uh, uh, the song in the commercial. And we had a really weird uh, fountain on the Detroit River. It was a wing nut. And I guess because it's the Motor City, of course, you know, you got to have car parts for everything. Right. Detroit right. Red Wings logo is a wheel yeah. and a wing, yeah. you know. Uh, but uh, so we had this, this um, you know, wing nut as a fountain. And there were, uh, you know, people just dancing and all that in the water coming up from the ground. And uh, it was like this big celebration to entice you to go to this festival. So that was my that's my connection to that to this song is is that memory. So I always think of it as a great party song. It's got great energy to it. You know, how 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 does it not make you want to get out of your chair and just move around or just do something? Yeah. You know, so here is Thunder's version of Gimme Some Lovin'. why but to me this sounds like musically not talking about the vocals but just musically what the knack would have done if they had done a cover of this song is very much yeah it almost sounds like a half step too slow doesn't it like i think if, yes if, if they would have cranked it up a little bit uh, a little bit quicker i would like a little more mm-hmm. and it, it's how does that kind of my sharona choppiness that dun 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 yeah very much so yeah. um i i I just didn't think they did anything with the song that added to the original. Like they did just a very straightforward cover of it. Yeah. Um, I, I think they've got a sound, you know, they have a personality and I don't think they stamped it on this at all. No, I would agree with that. I, like I said, I, I think they, they could have just, uh, you know, cranked it up a notch. And I, mm-hmm. I do like the organ. I'm glad they incorporated that. And the background yeah. singers I thought were tremendous. Yes. But, you definitely. know, the, the song doesn't flow. Really, it's got this kind of choppiness to it in that beginning intro riff that it, you know, have they just, you know, played it a half step up, you know, I, I think would have, would have solved a lot of problems I have with this track. And I like the organ sound. I'm really glad they put it in there, but at the same point, it felt the, the, the sound of it felt a little lackluster. Like it wasn't as, as gritty or pushing as hard as it could have, which I think would have enhanced the song a little bit. Love the backing singers. I think that they were fantastic. Um, but yeah, what, what's interesting is if the singer would have sang like this on the last song, 
had this kind of energy because he is singing with a little bit more push on this one. Mm -hmm. I think that would have made the last song a lot better. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, he sounds great on this. I just uh, wish it was a little quicker. And uh, yeah, yeah, like it just made it a little bit different than, than the Steve Winwood uh, version from Way Way Back when. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, I, I think that this is a song where you're you're wanting to get people up on their feet. You know, this is if you're playing this live, this is you play this after a ballad or after, you know, a couple of mid-tempo songs. You got to get them recharged, maybe play it later in the concert before the big finale. Something that's going to get them back engaged. Right. So you've got to bring it on a song like this. Well, and on the vinyl record, this is the album closer. Uh, so maybe and we talked about sequencing. Maybe if you're going to change something, maybe you swap this with uh, girls going out of her head. Uh, which I think oh, yeah. may have been a better closer to the record than this. Yeah, I the version that, uh, of this that I have has the song Distant Thunder, which we're going to get into here in a minute. So that that I didn't realize that that was the album ending track. I thought this was the proper album. Yeah, no, uh, well, the vinyl issue stopped at uh, Give Me Some Love and the CD and cassette okay. version has Distant Thunder. Oh, gotcha. And then I saw that there is the new deluxe version out that's like a two-disc um, two set. There's uh, It's available on iTunes for download and... I think Amazon had the uh, the vinyl package of it as well. Yeah, and I, I bought the vinyl package from the Thunder uh, store, actually, in the UK. That, that's where you get the gold and silver uh, records mm. and, and the second disc with the live cuts and all that stuff. So, Did they have anything else fun in the package? Uh, no, that was about it. There's like a poster in it, too. So. Hmm. Okay. Nothing wrong with that. Yep. I always wish that uh, when when Deep Purple had come out with the 25th anniversary edition of Burn, that they would have include like had a had a version where you could get the candles. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, there was a company that made them, and they did uh, back in the early 2000s. I want to say um, I had contacted the, that candle company to ask if there was any way to get a set, and they said no. And then a few months later, they came out with a limited edition run oh. of, of the candles, but they were incredibly expensive and I could not afford them at the time. So I was never able to get them. Um, but that would be that would be cool. Yeah, to, that to would be cool. Yeah. As a package. Yeah. We're actually hitting the 50th anniversary of Burn this year. Wow. <sighs> I'll be over in the corner turning to dust. <laughs> Well, let's check out the uh, the last song in the album. And, you know, that was another thing, too, that that was um, a really weird time in, in, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s with formatting, because bands had the ability to now put more music because you could extend a cassette. Uh, you had a certain amount of time. I don't remember what CDs were initially. Were they 65 minutes? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And then they got to 80, I think, or 85 was the final um but but you could you could do that. But then if you wanted to do that on vinyl, you had to make the grooves really thin, which meant it had more skip potential. So they really didn't want to do that. Then you'd have to go to a double vinyl, which meant like a, a huge cost in production that made, you know, unless the band's a big hit, not going to be worth it. So it was a really weird time when formats would have different configurations of songs based on what they could fit on each format. Yep. No, you're exactly right. And if you remember eight tracks, it was even more wonky. Because A tracks, they mixed it up all sorts of ways because you had to, there was, you know, the A track would flip in the middle of a song. Like it was just dumb. Mm -hmm. And the order made no sense because it had no cohesion to the album whatsoever. Yeah. Well, let's check out Distant Thunder. Safety of my home. The news is looking bad today, like 
Okay. I'm very sad that this wasn't included on the album for people because honestly, I think this is the best song. Really? Um, I think the vocal line is great against the guitar. I think that um, the energy is fantastic. Uh, I, I wish he was using this voice on a couple more of the songs where, again, he's like excited to be singing. You can feel that energy in the vocal. Uh, the only thing I didn't like was I, I don't like uh, that squeaky guitar sound. I have a really hard time with that because those frequencies as an audio engineer, just they just shoot right into my eardrum. Uh, but, uh, the solo was, was pretty decent. Um, a little, a, a little over the top for what I like, but, uh, pretty decent, but yeah, I think, honestly, I think this is the best song on, on there. It's a really good track. And it's the one I've listened to the least because I only had this on vinyl and the original vinyl didn't have distant thunder on it. So I've only heard this song kind of a few times, but yeah, I dig it as an album closer. I know in the new, uh, vinyl reissue, what they did was, uh, side A is the same, uh, side B now cuts out on an Englishman on holiday. And then the first side of the second record has the last three songs girls got uh girls girls going out of her head thank you uh give me some loving and then distant thunder and then side d uh, the second side there is a few live tracks so uh, oh, okay. they, that, that's how they had to split it up on the uh, double uh, album reissue yeah see the configuration on an album is so difficult because what they would do is they would pick the configuration for the album then they would base the cassette off of the album. So that's why you have maybe a long pause where you have to fast forward the cassette to the end before you can flip it over and get the start of the next song. Um, because it was all based on, all right, the, the, the toughest configuration is the album. So that's going to be how we decide what goes on what side. Then we'll just duplicate that on cassette. No big deal. Uh, eight track, they're like, dad, just somebody else will figure that out. <laughs> you know, whoever burns the tape will figure it out, you know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a bummer because I think this is a, a really good, very powerful song. I think it shows really what the band could do and, uh, in, in ways that the other songs don't. So yeah, it's, it's sad that this wasn't pushed for more in the, uh, in the initial release. Yeah. Like I said, if you just got the vinyl issue, like I did back in 1990, you didn't get this song. Which so would have been from... the most common, uh, purchase even in 1990 vinyl was still pretty big. Maybe, maybe cassette would have rivaled the, uh, sales for vinyl but definitely would not have been CD yet. No. And I, I don't even remember ever seeing a, a cassette uh, of this record back in the day. Oh. Um, we had a records on wheels uh, in a town that was nearby. It was about an hour away. So uh, they, and they carried all vinyl, everything. So that's where I was able to find a copy of uh, Backstreet Symphony, which I still have. I still have the original vinyl I got back in 1990 and I have the new uh, double reissue. Oh, very nice. Well, I know that um, you had said that you were going to be going down to uh, where Kevin Brown lives and you were going to go to a record store. Were you able to find a copy of Rainbows Down to Earth? No, actually, I only made it to the new record store. I wasn't able to make it to uh, 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 the one that he frequents. Uh, the family kind of vetoed that and took me to the big mall. Uh, so I just had like a Sunrise Records and they didn't have Rainbow, unfortunately. But I got my local guys are, are on the hunt for it. They didn't have a copy. Uh, they, they're pretty sure they have it in their own collections, but they didn't want to part with it. Uh, right. But they're they're still looking for me. They'll 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 track one down. I'm pretty confident. Oh, for sure. As I've said on the show before, that is the album I have listened to, arguably more than any other album. And uh, I, I was saying to Nate the other day, uh, Revolver would probably be second. Yeah, yeah. Those are are huge for me. Just just for a little fun, because I uh, made the comparison earlier about uh, Joe Satriani's War. Let's just check out a little bit of that, so you can hear the riff I was talking about. All right.
So very similar. Yes, that Joe Satriani, he knew how to play a guitar, didn't he? Yes, he did. <laughs> and still does. He's he's a I mean, I, I remember uh seeing an interview with him because I, I wasn't a huge Satriani fan. I know a couple of his songs, like you know, Big Bad Moon, Serpent uh, the uh, uh Satch Boogie and all that. Yeah. Um, but I, I watched an interview with him about when he got invited to fill in for Richie Blackmore when Richie left the band in the middle of their Japanese tour, and he's like, No. <laughs> Who who wants to follow in those steps? And and you know you know when you walk out on stage, people are going to be pissed. It's not Richie, you know. They're no matter who you are, it's not a good position to be in. Well, and he was rumored to be doing that with Van Halen. Uh, remember when it was going to be Alex and uh, and Michael and uh, you know Joe Satriani was going to play guitar, and a lot of Van Halen fans were like, "Great, you know he could pull it off, absolutely." But who wants to step into those shoes? Exactly. Well, and then the other thing you wonder is, are you getting Van Halen or are you because they're completely different guitarists? Yeah. You know, Eddie Eddie is not that kind of flashy guitarist like Satriani is. Satriani is a, a lot of jazz influence, a lot of fast picking, a lot of, you know, really on fire type playing. And and uh, I think that um, Eddie was more feeling and more, you know, playing things that worked for the song. Mm hmm. You know, where, whereas Joe writes songs that are specifically more intense and, and difficult because that's just his style of writing. So I don't I don't really know how well necessarily that would work. I, I know that when I've heard the stuff Satriani did with Purple, because there's there's some live cuts out there that you can hear because uh, he never recorded with them. Um, it's pretty good. But but there are definitely some Satriani moments in there that, that really change the feel of the songs because it's just his style. Well, I'm very sad it's not going to happen. Uh, thanks to Jason Newstead and his big mouth, he kind of ruined the surprise for everybody. But uh, I would love to see Joe Satriani uh, taking on some Van Halen. I think he could do a pretty decent job of it. What happened? Well, it, it was all kind of hush-hush. And then Jason Newstead in a in an article, uh, I don't even think he's ever asked, but he said, yeah, I was asked by Alex Van Halen to go jam with him and Joe Satriani uh, to do a, a string of uh, Van Halen-like tribute shows. Everyone's like, oh, my God, really? Is this, is this a thing that's going to happen? Who's going to sing? Is it Sammy? Is it Dave? What's happening? Why is it Michael Anthony involved? Blah, blah, blah. It all kind of blew up. And then that did, everything just kind of shut down. Uh, that's a shame. Yeah. It, it couldn't have shut down because he announced it, though, could it? Well, yeah, because like nothing was signed. I, I don't even think that oh. I, he, I think he said that they jammed a couple of times, but that was about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, you you get the fans, the certain section of fans are like, oh, you know, this is Van Halen was Eddie Van Halen. I'm not going to listen to this. This is garbage. What the hell they do in the ruining legacies, blah, 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 which they're really just paying tribute to a, an incredible artist who we lost way too soon. How that could be a bad thing. I'll never know. Yeah. It, it comes back to those people that are like, well, if it's not, if it's not Eddie, it's not Van Halen. I mean, you could say if it's not David Lee Roth, it's not Van Halen. If it's, but I would be curious as why Michael Anthony wouldn't have wanted to be involved or if he was oh, not he would. At, like, maybe he, they're not on good terms or. Well, no, uh, Michael's not on good terms. Uh, I think with Alex at all. Uh, he certainly, uh, he had his issues with Eddie too. And I think one of his big regrets is him and Eddie didn't get to make up uh, before Eddie passed. But Eddie had mentioned on when he was talking about what he called the, the kitchen sink tour, it was going to feature everybody. And he'd even said, yeah, and we'll bring Mikey back uh, for that one too. But, um, you know, uh, like Alex and Sammy are very, very strange right now. Uh, Michael Anthony says he talks to Alex on occasion. Uh, not a lot, but when they do, they're talking about family. They're not talking about music. Um, so I, I think that Alex would probably be a little more amendable to bringing uh, Michael Anthony back. I don't know about Sammy, though. That 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 ship seems to have sailed. Uh, they don't seem to, yeah. to like each other at the moment. And Sammy says, I reached out a few times to Al and never hear anything back. So, 
So was it going to be David Lee Roth or were they bringing in someone else? Uh, well, David Lee Roth mentioned, oh, yeah, we're talking about it, but we're going to need me. We're going to need Pink. We're going to need a bunch of other people to, to kind of pull it off. And then again, those same fans are like, really, Pink? She's going to come on and Pink. sing Van Halen? Yeah. yeah. Huh. That's random. Yep. No, uh, Dave's vision get, was we, we need... Sia and... Yeah, exactly. But he said, no, we're going to need multiple guitar players, multiple bass players. So we'll have uh, Michael Anthony, we'll have Jason Newstead, we'll have Joe Satriani and a few other guitar players. And we'll have me and we'll have Pink. And I can't remember who else he mentioned as being potential vocalist, but uh, definitely no Sammy on that one. Wow. Yeah, it's it's a tough thing when you've got a band that has that many iconic people in it. Um, no matter what you even if you brought them both back, the fans, there would be fans that are pissed that it's not just one or the other. If you go with one or the other, you've got another camp of people that are going to be pissed. Like there's no winning no. in this situation. It's like if you want to do it, do it because you want to do it. And the people that are going to like it are going to like it. And everybody else, you just don't log into Twitter. Exactly. And if you want to play Sammy stuff, call Sammy, you know, you know, yeah. rebuild that bridge and, and go out and, and do it for the fans. Cause there's a, a huge section of fans that would love to hear 5150 cuts and OU812 and four unlawful cuts. Like, absolutely. Bring Gary back, do a couple of the, of the better songs from Van Halen three, just for a little bit, yeah. you know, change of pace. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if it, it, it's kind of like what I don't understand about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when they're like, well, this member allow, is allowed to be inducted and this one isn't, even though they contributed just as much to the band or more to the band in some cases. Uh, sometimes somebody who was only there for one album gets in and some guy who was there for five albums doesn't. Like, I, I don't understand that whole political thing. Mm -hmm. But if you're, it all depends on what the motivation is. If you're doing it because you want to do it, then do it your way, like whatever that thing is. And just don't worry about what people say. Just go out and do it. Because no matter what, if there's a Van Halen tribute with members from Van Halen, people are going to go. Oh, yeah. you don't have to worry about not selling out venues unless you're doing stadiums, because you're not going to sell stadiums doing that. But you will sell decent sized venues, um, maybe not hockey arenas, but certainly decent sized theaters. You know, you could you could easily sell out. So do it because you want to do it. I mean, if you want to pay tribute to to Eddie or or you just want to go back and play that music one more time, you know, before you you say, okay, that's the end of my career, do it. I think they talked about like a run of like five or ten like uh, football or baseball size stadiums. So in North America, they would fill that. Like the Taylor Hawkins tribute concert, uh, you know, pretty much filled Wembley Stadium in the UK. First one. Yeah. Then the second one, they sold out the Staples Center. So if you're doing like a run of five stadiums across North America, uh, for Eddie Van Halen with a bunch of uh, of guests, uh, I think you'd have no problem, uh, you know, filling the majority of those stadium stadiums. Yeah, if you did them in key cities, but if you if you were to try to do a whole tour of that, I don't yeah. know how because people will travel. If there if there's only a few shows like that, people will travel. You know, if if you play Madison Square Garden, they're going to come from all over to go see this at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, you know, uh, would they travel to Phoenix to see you play at the uh, the Diamondback Stadium? Probably not. No, if you're doing five, I think you're good. Like, who's filling stadiums right now? Taylor Swift is filling stadiums. Yeah. Beyonce is filling stadiums, and Metallica yeah. are filling right. stadiums. But uh, nobody else really is. Uh, Guns and Roses, they're still doing stadium runs, but I don't know if they're mm -hmm. as successful as they were when they first announced their uh, Hell Froze Over, whatever tour that they called it. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, you know was so big. Like I saw them in a football stadium, uh, but that mm -hmm. was quite a few years ago now. But they're still out there pumping out the same tunes. Uh, with only a couple of new ones that, quite frankly, aren't very good. And yeah. uh, you know, they're still trying to fill stadiums, and I think they're struggling. Foo Fighters, certain sections of the world, I think, can fill stadiums. Um, maybe not so much in North America. They're still kind of a, a hockey arena uh, group here, but 
uh, yeah, Van Halen, if you keep it small, uh, I, I think you're you're filling stadiums, no problem. And I don't even know, honestly, I don't know how the uh, the tickets were selling for Aerosmith's residency here in Vegas at the Park MGM. I don't know if they were filling that every night. I don't know what the, the capacity is. It's got to be at least 5,000, if, mm. if not bigger, But because uh, a lot of bands play there. Um, but Metallica was selling out the Raiders stadium, which is, you know, football stadium. Yeah, so, 75,000. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you know what, what the venues are for Aerosmith's uh, farewell tour? Are they doing stadiums? I would think they would try. No, they're they're doing hockey rinks and, and basketball mm. uh, arenas. So the decent size. It's still pretty good size, though. Yeah. You know, you're 12 to 18,000 seaters. Uh, so is that all? Yeah. I, I imagine there there's some smaller venues mixed in there, too. It's a 40 date tour. So. But uh, yeah. you know they're 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 playing like uh, Air Canada Center in Toronto, where the Maple Leafs play, and the Toronto Raptors and that kind of thing. Madison Square Garden, obviously, uh, Boston yeah. Garden, all those places. So, yeah, well, Boston Garden is a little bit smaller too, as, as I recall. The hockey rink was not the same size as other hockey rinks; they were like four feet shorter or something. Yeah, but now they uh, well they have the new rink, so it's a lot more uh, oh. in line. Yeah. See, but with floor, like, I think with the uh, floor seating, I think Joe Louis Arena is like 28,000. It used to be, of course, they, that's gone, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure their their new stadium is bigger. But um, like 28,000, I think, was, was what Joe Louis Arena was with, but that's like without the ice and people having floor seating. That, that, that sounds high. Usually those hockey rinks uh, in the seats uh, seat anywhere from 14 to 16, then you get another mm-hmm. few on the floor. So it's usually around that 18, 19. Uh, well, it was a newer arena because they used to play at Cobo Hall. And I think when when they built Joe Lewis Arena, it was with the idea that they would be doing other things there where Cobo Hall was really just built for the Red Wings. OK, yeah. Uh, Joe Lewis uh, for a concert, uh, 21,000. Only 21. Wow. Yeah. And it, had a, yeah, it was 20,000 for Red Wings, too. Like it, it was a big one. Old Joe mm-hmm. Lewis Arena. Which... So they could only get a thousand people on the floor. Yeah. Well, of course, you're you're removing the back section though because you're not you don't have all the way around seating, so you gotta have to have to compensate for that. Exactly. But yeah. I thought it was higher than that. Nope. Just looked hmm. up here. Uh, yeah, twenty thousand sixty six for Red Wings and twenty one thousand six hundred and sixty six for concerts was the capacity. Wow. I saw some good shows there. I mean, Deep Purple a couple times. Alice Cooper, mm-hmm. uh, Fraley's Comet open for Alice Cooper. Yeah, that was that was a great arena. I was there once on my honeymoon. We got to see uh, the Red Wings take on the Vancouver Canucks. Unfortunately, oh, they nice. lost that night, but Detroit was my team. Stevie Eiserman was my favorite hockey player of all time. So uh, yeah. Stevie was scratched that night. This is his last year uh, in the league. Uh, so I didn't get to see him play hockey oh. that night, but I did see him up in the uh, in the press box, the owner's box. Yeah, he had a he had a pretty rough time towards the end with the injuries. And yeah, but but still, I mean, the guy getting knocked over, falling on his knee in his face, scoring a goal. He was <laughs> untouchable in the playoffs. That was that guy was amazing and, and pay, played through so much pain. I love Stevie Y. I got to meet him once. Uh, he was in Saskatchewan for a fundraiser. This is after he won the gold medal uh, GMing T- Team Canada. So I got to meet him, uh, you know, shake his hand, visit for a bit. He signed a, a Stevie Y jersey I had that I picked up actually at Joe Louis Arena on that nice. trip. So I met him in his rookie year. Uh, they were they were doing some kind of meet and greet on the uh, on an off game day. They had played the night before. I don't remember what town they were playing. Might have even been Toronto. Um, but it was probably somewhere close. But uh, I remember Reed Larson, their defenseman, had uh, taken a slap shot and just destroyed the glass. And that was the talk of the day because it had just happened the night before. But this was Stevie's rookie year and uh, got to meet him and got his autograph. And he he hadn't come out yet. I mean, he was like 
he was on the ice. He was doing well, but he hadn't really turned into the the Stevie Eiserman that we know now. I think mm-hmm. he had just gotten on the line with John O'Grodnick and um, I think Mike Blaisdell was the other wingman. And uh, he he was just getting fired up. It was like early in his first season. And I got to meet him then and then a couple other times. But uh, yeah, yeah, definitely that guy had it. I'm, I'm so happy to see that he's back with the wings mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, working on rebuilding their team because they're kind of a mess. Yeah, they have been for a while. Uh, but if he can do what he did in Tampa, right, he built that team that won, you know, the last few cups there. So uh, as a Red Wing fan, we're, we're all kind of hoping uh, the draft was last night. Hopefully the new rookies pan out. And uh, yeah. That would be good. Uh, I, I just it, it's it's almost like I just wish that he could say, look, we're just going to watch the 2007 playoffs a few times and then we're going to watch the 97 playoffs a few times. And that's what I want you to do. Just just do that. <laughs> it, it helps when you have like a Curtis Osgood and a Dominic Hoshik in net. Uh, that, that's for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it seems the little bit of hockey that I've seen over the last couple of years, it seems like the, the defense is really and not just with the wings, but with a lot of teams, it's like peewee hockey out there. Like they're they're like they don't know where to stand. They're not blocking. You don't have a, a Chris Draper or uh, oh, who's the other guy uh, that used to stand in front of the net all the time? The one that uh, uh, Darren McCarty. Like you don't have a Darren McCarty in front of the like. It's the game has changed so much, but you need guys like that that are willing to get the crap beat out of them to redirect a puck while they're falling on their face. Yeah, you, you don't have the grinders like you did in the old days. Everything's about speed now. So you got smaller players, yeah. speedier players, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, you, you you miss a guy like Chris Draper. Oh, for sure. And I mean, the game evolves. It changes sometimes. It's a defensive game. Then it rotates into, okay, we need more goals because that's what the fans want. And they change the rules a little bit to make it a little more goal oriented. And, mm. you know, then you got these guys in goal that are like six foot three and half as wide as the goal. Like, how are you going to score on that guy? Yeah. You know, you got to do these pass across the ice a couple times and catch him out of position plays, which then becomes 50% of the goals. It's just a whole different game now. Yeah. It's cyclical though. It'll come back around. I feel for the goaltenders though, to be honest, like the game is so fast now and I grew up, playing goal i wanted to be a goalie for the red wings and and i watch what they're they're doing now and i'm like i i don't know how these guys see anything and with the way that they're getting so expert at deflections mm-hmm. i mean how do you how do you get your goal average under four a game goaltending is really hard too because uh you want to find a really good one but you shouldn't spend money on one because you never know who the next big goalie is going to be like you spend eight nine million bucks on a, a vasilevsky in tampa bay but, you know, who won the, the Stanley Cup this year? Who's the best goalie in the playoffs? Uh, Adam or Aiden Hill from the Las Vegas Golden Knights, right? Who was, uh, you know, the fifth string goalie uh, in Vegas at the start of the year. Like, <laughs> Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I thought that they would have gotten to the Cup with uh, Marc-Andre Fleury or as uh, their, their mascot dog was Bark-Andre Furry. <laughs> well, they made it to the cup with him, uh, just couldn't win they it did. in their yeah, first year. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. But anyway, this wasn't a hockey podcast. This is a podcast about thunder. Corey, thank you so much for introducing me to the band. I can't say that they're a band that's in my wheelhouse, but I can say I did find some things I liked on the album. Um, there's, they're definitely talented. I mean, for for what they do, like I said, they're very good at what they do. I would say pretty much at the top of the the game. Awesome. I, I was just hoping uh, people out there are a little more like-minded like me or uh, align more with my musical taste. They might give a band like Thunder a chance because they're woefully, yeah. woefully uh, overlooked 
And uh, I'm just trying to get some more people to give Thunder a chance, like I did. Uh, thanks to Mitch LaFon, who reminded me, oh, yeah, I got that record. It was actually pretty decent. And then I got another record. Then I got another record. And then you just keep going and going. And a lot of good stuff in their catalog. So uh, if you're a fan of like, like blues, good, uh, straight four on the floor, rock and roll, bar rock, if you will, uh, Thunder is a great band. Go seek them out. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Yeah, and I would imagine that they're a really good band on stage too. I mean, you can you can tell there's a, there's really good talent in the band. They know how to perform. Uh, I would imagine their live show is pretty good. It, and uh, I've been, never had the opportunity to see them live. They haven't toured North America in forever. Uh, but there's a couple of great live albums out there. One from their first farewell tour. That's pretty good. And uh, uh, back when they did uh, they did two uh, sets at Donington. In 1990, 1993, one for the first album, one for the second album. That's really, really good. So I would recommend people pick up that uh, live collection, too, if they're so inclined, if they like the band. Well, and I would say if you're a band that gets on the bill at Donington, that really says a lot. Yeah. You know, that's that's not one of those like three day festivals where they just any band they can dig up that'll show up, they'll get because they need to fill three stages for three days or what like this isn't that donnington is a big deal and you better be on your game too because those fans will chew you up and spit you out so oh absolutely i mean you're talking really big bands like metallica and, and deep purple and rainbow and uh white snake you know those are the bands that headline donnington because those are bands that are at the top of their game all the time uh, if you get on that bill that's a big event one of my favorite uh, live albums from all time, ACDC, Live at Donington from the Razor's Edge mm-hmm. Tour. They were just on fire that show. Yeah. Rainbow's last gig with uh, the Grand Bonnet lineup from Down to Earth was Donington in uh, 81, I think. And um, yeah, that show was amazing. They didn't know it was their last show, but it was. <laughs> <laughs> As it happens. Well, Corey, thank you so much, folks. If you uh, haven't already listened to any of the uh, huge amount of growing shows that Corey is a part of, check out Aerosmith Backtracks Revisit or Backtracks Aerosmith. Re- God, I should know I'm on the fucking show. <laughs> Backtracks Aerosmith Revisited, Backtracks Theme Music, which I love the show. Tell the folks a little bit about that one. Uh, Backtracks Theme Music, John, Mariano, and myself. Uh, we're just talking about our favorite songs from our favorite movies. Sometimes uh, it's song-driven. There's a song I want to talk about. Uh, that's attached to a movie like uh, we just did one uh, money for nothing from uh, dire straits i love that tune right so i wanted to talk about that track uh, it was just used in an apple film called air which is the story of uh, michael jordan and how he got his uh, his nike uh, sponsorship back in the day pretty decent movie too but that was more of the song i wanted to talk about and sometimes it's the movie i want to talk about uh, which is how i found rainbow because i really wanted to talk about the new guardians of the galaxy film and there's a great right. sequence sent to uh since you've been gone uh, by Rainbow. So I'm like, how did I miss Rainbow all these years? And I'm I'm trying to get more deeply uh, into Graham Bonnet, especially uh, that album, uh, Rainbow, because I love that song, Since You Be Gone. It's fantastic. So uh, it, it's our opportunity that we get to, you know, we're not following one band's catalog all the way through. Uh, we could actually cherry pick. We did uh, uh, Shaboom, an old uh, standard from like the, the 50s, not that long ago, from a movie we want to talk about uh, called Clue. Uh, we bring on guests like yourself who want to talk about, you did uh, Karate Kid. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, way back when. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, it's great to see because um, movies like music hit differently for everybody. And sometimes we'll hear from one of our friends say, I really love this movie. I'd love to talk about this song from it. And you, you just get to kind of geek out and talk about shit you love. Uh, it, it's nice where it's not like uh, the Aerosmith show where you're going to get the odd stinker. 
And for we had a run of stinkers actually uh, just lately, uh, which, <laughs> which, some, have. which sometimes is kind of tough to talk about. It's nice to be positive all the time about whatever your subject is, uh, and so yeah. that's that's why I really love doing uh, theme music because it that's what it is. And John will bring a movie I haven't seen in forever, like Dracula. Uh, we did a Annie Lennox song from Bram uh, Stoker's Dracula, mm-hmm. so that was really cool. And I can introduce him to films that I've seen that he hasn't seen in a long while, like The Commitments. Which is one of my favorite movies of all time, but it's about a, a you know an Irish soul band, uh, you know the, all these white kids in in Dublin, uh, you know playing Wilson Pickett and, and that kind of thing. It's fantastic. So, and it's it is great because film music and soundtracks are so important in our society. They always have been, but it seems like in the last ten years or so, where the scores are being released as soundtracks instead of just the hits, you know, songs that they've licensed for the movie. You know, I mean, all the Transformers films have had soundtracks released as soundtracks. You know, it's just regular music. Before that, it was pretty much, well, John Williams movies will yep. get a release and then we'll have, you know, anything that's popular. But then, you know, John Barry and like the Disney movies, The Black Hole, those rescuers, those soundtracks started coming out. But a lot of those were not just soundtracks. They were dialogue tracks as well. They would have the dialogue from the movie as well as the music. And it's really grown. And in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, actual score soundtracks have become a big deal. So it's it's nice to see those getting some recognition as well. And you guys cover it all. There, there was a big boom in 97 from uh, James Horner's Titanic score. That became one yes. of the biggest albums uh, of the 90s. It was just the orchestral store, uh, score. And, uh, you know, Hans Zimmer had a couple of big ones like Gladiator. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean was another one. So uh, it kind of broke away from just John Williams. And we had a few more. Now we got guys like Luke Gorse and... Uh, the Black Panther uh, soundtrack mm-hmm. sold really, really well. Um, yeah. Michael Giancchino, who's doing a lot of stuff for for Marvel and Star Wars now, a couple of his right. have sold really well. So it's it's nice to see kind of this new batch of composers as John Williams, who's now, what, 93 or 94, whatever he is. Uh, he just released the new Indiana Jones score uh, yesterday on digital yeah. as we record this. And I was listening to it. And it's a great score. So I, I still like getting the uh, the orchestral scores as well, because that to me is is so impressive how a guy like John Williams could just watch a movie like once through, write an hour and a half of music and, and just have it you know fit the mood and the theme of the film so well. Yeah, I was so excited that he was doing the music for the uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I was kind of worried. I figured that they would get somebody who would be at least in the tradition of the film because if, if, I didn't think he was going to do it. But when I saw he signed on for it, I'm like, all right, at least we're going to have a good score regardless of what the movie is. And I haven't seen it, so I don't know. Uh, I've not heard good things, but, you know, I, I could hear nothing but bad reviews and go in and absolutely love the movie. So I don't really go by that. Exactly. Judge for yourself. I'm going to see it uh, tomorrow, actually, as we're recording this. But I, I did listen to the soundtracks. I know John Williams talked about uh, one of the new characters. Her name is Helena, and he wrote her theme. And he said, it's one of my favorite pieces of music I've done in the last little bit. Uh, and it's a really, really wonderful piece of music. I, as soon as we log off the call, Scott, go uh, download uh, the Dial of Destiny soundtrack and listen to uh, Helena's theme or Helena's theme, whoever. Uh, I might just have to do that. Uh, I kind of want to wait until I see the movie, though. I, I kind of want to experience the score with the movie and then kind of start dissecting it afterwards. I I, I don't want to get distracted by I'm waiting for this song to show up or you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's a really weird thing. But before we sign off, I will give you a um, a little bit of personal Michael Giacchino uh, trivia. When I was writing the last 20 chapters or so of the Universal Court of uh, book three, uh, I had a specific playlist that I listened to while I was writing that all from the show Lost, which okay. he scored. I wanted to create a very specific mood to write the the end of that. 
And um, it did not make it easier to write in, in certain aspects because it's a very emotional music and um, parts of it were kind of hard to listen to, especially because you, you're, you're remembering the show if you were a fan of it and, and all that. But he wrote some brilliant, brilliant music for that show. He really did. And uh, his film scores are really good. I, I can't believe, yes. kind of like John Williams, he works as fast as he does. I know on uh, mm-hmm. uh, Rogue One, the, the Star Wars film, I think he had like three weeks to do that whole score. And it yeah. did a really good job of it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's it's unbelievable when, when you get locked into a position of I only have this much time and you've got so many things that you have to do and you have to get things, you know, if you have to get themes approved, because if they don't like the theme, then what's the point of spending three days working on all the variations of that theme? Uh, so it's it's a really tough thing, but you can get locked in those boxes. If you're good under pressure, you can come up with some of your best stuff. I remember I had one song that I had one night to write um, from beginning to end. And it was one of the best pieces of music to this day that I've ever written. And uh, and I, I love that. I, I love being able to uh, just nose to the grindstone and get it done, but get it done with quality. And that song was An Englishman on Holiday. <laughs> yes, I just licensed it to them. Yeah, no, not quite. Okay. Uh, well, Corey, thank you so much for for coming on the show. Check him out also on And the Podcast Will Rock. And your new show is? Uh, the Ultimate Catalog Clash, the UCC. We're uh, endeavoring to find uh, the uh, best album out of each band's catalog. So that's been a lot of fun. Now, are you going to... I, 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 I have feelings about this, but are you going to then compare like your the different bands albums together because i don't i don't understand how people do that well no uh we had talked about because uh, what we're going to do is like i said we have a grading system so it's very analytical music lyrics production and we break it down uh we combine our scores at the end of it so uh we come up with an ultimate grade uh and so what we might do is after say like 10 seasons do an 11th season and do an all-star season where we do uh, each band's uh you know, highest album or something. We'd have to, we'd have to kind of regrade it uh, kind of after that, maybe with a different perspective. Haven't really thought that far ahead, but no, this is just kind of grading each song in a, in a catalog or at least half the catalog if it's a big discography and trying to see uh, which album ha- gets the highest, uh, highest percentage. Cool. Because the reason I ask is because I used to see uh, when I was on Twitter, um, all these these comparisons, like what what song do you like better? Would you prefer Black Sabbath, Paranoid, or Madonna, Like a Virgin? I'm like, what what is your basis of? How do you even compare those two songs? Yeah. They're nothing like each other. It's They're like, not the same style. Like, well, and yeah, comparison is tough. But when you're just looking at the song musically, okay, lyrically, I gave, uh, you know, Paranoid an eight, and I gave Like a Virgin seven point five. Uh, mm-hmm. Musically, you know, kind of kind of the same thing. But yeah, when you're doing a comparison, you're comparing, you know, uh, comparing uh, apples to orangutans, right? There's not even in the yeah. same field. Yeah, exactly. It, it just, yeah, it has to make, it has to have some sort of foundation or, you know, it, based on this or based on that, like based on lyrics. Like, but even that, I think it would be difficult because you're, you're two different target audiences, two different styles of songs. So that was one of the things I used to see all the time on Twitter. I'm like, I don't know how people are picking their picks. They're not elaborating. It's just, they're like this one. Like, but, but why? Yeah. <laughs> well, be, because I it's like that one more is really what you can come down to, right? Like I like Black yeah. Sabbath more than Madonna. So I pick that right. one. Yeah. But it, but it's kind of like, you know, you and I comparing our feelings on, on this album by Thunder and saying, okay, here's why you like it. And here's why I don't like it as much because my background is in this kind of music and this is my comfort zone. 
which is like Tarkus by Emerson, Lake and Palmer, where your comfort zone is exactly this kind of music, which yeah. is I don't want to think about it. I don't want to analyze it. I just want to put it on and, and just enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is which is perfectly fine. Perfectly I think fine. so. But thanks so much for introducing me to this and introducing my audience to this. I uh, hope you guys uh, enjoyed it and go check it out. Go check out their back catalog because. Even if uh, this album may not be the one for you, there might be something else they've done that is. They've got great production. Uh, did he? Did uh, Andy Taylor continue to produce for them? Uh, he did the next album, uh, Laughing on Judgment Day. But I think that's it. The only two. Okay. Well, I'm sure that uh, once you've got the ball rolling like that, you're going to be able to get another good producer. And uh, it's typically going to go well from there, except for the occasional album when you get in a fight because your producer got you off of drugs. <laughs> Yeah, which has happened on a band that we cover. But no, I, I think all of Thunder's albums sound really well. They're all really, really well produced. Very cool. Well, thank you, Corey, for coming on. Um, we'll, uh, we'll have you back on. We've talked about a Halloween episode that uh, we might cover an album for that. But uh, time will tell what happens between now and then. Thank you, Corey. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun and uh, looking forward to the next time. Excellent. We'll see you guys on the next episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. Cheers. Cheers.